0: Good morning. All right, before we jump into uh, our sermon text this morning, we're going to tell everyone, talk to the kids, tell kids uh, what to expect uh, from the many passages that are about to come up uh, and what the sermon's going to be about. Okay, so here's how I want to do it. I want to tell you all about a time when I was a kid, I went to summer camp. Loved my summer camp. I went for like three or four summers. There's one night at this summer camp that is called Mission Impossible. Okay. And it's a surprise. Like you don't know when Mission Impossible is. It's some random night. You are on your way back to your cabin just to go to sleep. And then all of a sudden, this music comes on all over camp. It's the Mission Impossible music. I'm going to see if this works. We should have planned this out a little better. I should have planned this out a little better. Let's see if this works. (laughs) You start running, you start running to your cabin because you now have a mission. You have to, you have to get your map, you have to go and you have to find all these clues and you have to find your flag and you have to get back to base and you have to do it without any of the camp staff finding you, or you have to start over. And if you don't finish in time, you don't get your big prize, all this Coke and ice cream right before you go to bed. So, uh, one year we said, not only are we going to do this thing, we're going to be the first ones to do it and we're going to win. So we're going to be extra sneaky. That means everybody head to toe, put on black, can't see us. Also. No talking, no walkie-talkies, nothing. We will communicate via hand signals, okay? Also, no flashlights. So easy to see a flashlight if you're camp staff, they will find us. We're going we're going super sneaky and they, they won't even know we're coming. <laughs> you know, disaster. We couldn't see our map, so we didn't know where we were going. There was a lot of falling. Uh, And things really, really, really went bad when we started to sprint across a dark field. And then all of a sudden, the dark field got really bumpy and squishy. And we heard all this yelling and crying because we had just run over a bunch of girls from a a girl cabin. Sorry. Go, go, go. Shh. Go, go, go. go." And And we... Anyways we failed. <laughs> uh, we couldn't read our map. We couldn't find all our clues. We couldn't find our flag. We got back. We had lost half our cabin. <laughs> so we didn't get our Coke and our ice cream. Okay. Who know, Who remembers what book we're in, in the bo- book of the Bible? Job. So we're in Job. And remember last time, what we saw was Job was really, really suffering. Like he He is... He's lost all his wealth, all his money, his home. Uh, he's super, super sick now. Uh, and he's lost all his people, his servants. And worst of all, he's lost his family. His children have all died. And so we find Job, and he is in a terrible, terrible place. Uh, and he's super sad. And it's like what the Bible tells us. is It's like he's in the dark. Kids, have you all ever been stuck like in a dark room, and you can't see where you're going, and it's scary? You kind of freak out. That's that's where Job is. He's like stuck in the dark and he needs light. So three friends come to cheer him up. What do you think these three friends could have said to Job to cheer him up? What do y'all think, kids? Anything, anything come to mind? Colby. Um, this This is all part of God's plan. Great. What else? Anything else? What do you all think? Kids, what would you tell somebody if someone was super sad? Come on. Be happy. Be happy. And why be happy? Be happy because what? You think of any good reasons? How about this? Because What? Because Oh, because of God. Because God what? Be happy. I know you're saying be happy because God is with you. Oh, my goodness. Because God is with you. I know you're so sad, but God, there's a plan. God is at work. God is with you. God, what could you say? God, the big L word, loves you. And you could say, and hey, I, I'm here with you. I love you. I know you're so sad. I'm so sorry. Yo, that is all great counsel. These three friends that show up to talk to Job, they don't say any of that stuff. They say a bunch of bad stuff. Like, Job, God is punishing you because you must have done something really, really bad. So stop doing it. And then you'll be happy. They give him terrible, 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 terrible counsel. And what Job really needed to hear was, hey, I love you. Hey, God loves you. Hey, God is with you. And remember, God is not going to leave you here. He is going to save you. Like we do believe in a Savior who's coming because this was before Jesus came, but they knew a Savior was coming. And we know that Jesus has come, and we know we have that gospel that God loves us so much that he sent his son to live for you and to die for you in order to save you. Kids, the gospel for us, like that message about Jesus saving you, that is light to us. Job, at that point, he needed someone to bring him light. God loves you. When you are in the dark, kids, this is the light that you need too. Someone coming along and saying, I love you. And even more awesome than that, God loves you. And you know that because of Jesus. I don't know what's going on, but I know God loves you because of Jesus. And if you go through this life, kids, last thing I'll say, if you go through this life without the light of that gospel, you're going to be in the dark. Uh, You're not going to know your way around. You're going to fall. You're going to step on other people. And in the end, you'll lose. But if you have Jesus, no matter what happens, you can know that God is at work, that He's that He loves you, that He's with you. This is what we're going to see today. We're going to see Job struggling so much, but he is looking for that light to know that God loves him, even though he's hurting. So, uh, the book of Job, if everyone remembers in a word, is about conflict. Satan challenges God that since the fall, so Satan comes to God in that heavenly courtroom, throws up a challenge to God, hey, since the fall, mankind, they all belong to me. It's all mine. And God challenges Satan's challenge. <clears throat> have, you seen my certain, have you seen my servant, Job? You think you've won, but look, look there. My promise of grace is still there. And so Satan's challenge to God's challenge, to Satan's challenge, is that Job's, he's a liar, which makes God a liar, and the gospel of grace an empty lie and promise. So God says, great, challenge accepted. And we get a conflict of champions between God and the devil. And we see that these, this conflict of champions is going to be played out through a series of conflicts. we're still in Job chapter two. We got 40 more chapters to go Uh, and everything is going according to plan. Okay. Just wanted you to know today, we're going to cover chapters two to 27 Uh, uh, with some selections, some selections. Uh, But we said, if you can get the prologue, you can get everything that follows is really true. So uh, what you should do is go home and read these chapters over the next week in their entirety. You're going to see that these selections really do serve to capture. The same empty tune of these comforters and Job's descent into despair in what he does. All right, so let us begin in Job chapter 2. Oh, please stand for the reading of God's word. It won't be that long. I'm going to read quickly, but clearly. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him... They came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Just stop there for a little note. We are now in poetry, starting in chapter 3. Then Eliphaz, continuing on, there's more poetry. Then Eliphaz, the Timonite, answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Remember who that was innocent ever perished, Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. And then later Job answered and said, Am I the sea or a sea monster? that you've set a guard over me? What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. And then Job answered and said, how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. And then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. And then Job answered and said, No doubt you, you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. And though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past. that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So uh, we're going we're gonna to make sense of that because there's Job talking to them and he's talking to God and there's back and forth. Uh, but here we are. Satan has attacked and Job has lost his wealth. He's lost his health. He's lost his people, his servants. Worst of all, his family. His children have all died and his wife has abandoned him and yet Job remains faithful in all of it. And a few months go by and here's where we pick up. These allies have heard what's happened and they've come to comfort Job, but they're not, they're just not prepared for what they find. This is so bad. His friends, they don't recognize Job because he's so disfigured by the disease at this point. He's he's been driven so low. This man who is the greatest man of the East is driven to this disfigured, wretched person on on the brink of death uh, on a dunghill, the trash heap of the city. So they're so stunned that no one says anything for a week. They mean well, but it is heartbreaking that it's Job himself who has to break the week-long, awkward silence with crazed crying rather than any word of comfort from one of these friends. So now the craziness starts in chapter 3. And and we couldn't lay that out for you kind of the way it's it's really laid out just because of space. Uh, But uh, in chapter 3, where the craziness begins, we move from prose to poetry. So Alfred Lloyd Tennyson, the most famous English poet of the 19th century Victorian era, he said the book of Job is, quote, the greatest poem of ancient or modern times. So God inspires not only the words of Scripture, but he also inspires the form, the the literary genre of Scripture, which begs the question, why does God choose the genre of poetry to talk about something as big and as difficult as conflict between good and evil? and then the suffering that ensues because of it. J.A. Packer, old uh, theologian, said that uh, poems are always a personal take on something, communicating not just from head to head, but heart to heart. So prepare your heart. Because Job goes from enduring patience, enduring patience, to schizophrenic impatience from light to darkness. you want to ask, is it the physical distress that finally breaks him? Is it the, the sight of these princes and all their prosperity, their health and wealth, this just, it just hits too close to home and reminds Job of all that he's just lost? Or is it the sight of his friends and the look of shock and horror in their eyes as they look at Job? Like what undoes him? And we say, sure, all of that contributes to it. One Old Testament scholar has said the real problem for Job is that he is now surrounded by these brooding philosophers. And Job can't help but to start philosophizing about what's happened to him. And the more that he tries to come up with an explanation the more freaked out he becomes, the more aware he becomes of the mystery that is just engulfing him. As he tries to figure out the the why of what's happening to him, and he ends up questioning God's wisdom and God's justice. This Old Testament scholar uh, says, seeking the why, Job has soon lost the way. And here's Job's problem. In his original lament... In chapter 3, verse 23, he says, Why does God give the light of life to a man whose way is hidden, that is in the dark, and whom God has hedged in? And so what that is, is a callback to the very beginning of Job in chapter 1, verse 10, where Satan has described Job as hedged all around by God's favor, And that's why Job loves God. Now Job uses that same language to describe himself as one hedged in by God with darkness and disfavor. And his big question is, why? So I read some books from time to time. Uh, There's a book called The Beatles, The Bible, and Bodega Bay. I've not read it, uh, but I heard about it last night from Alistair Begg, uh, pastor in Cleveland, who happened to read this passage the night before he preached on it. So uh, the author is uh, Ken Mansfield, who was longtime U.S. manager of Apple Records, producer. Uh, in the 60s, he worked with The Beatles, The Beach Boys, Waylon Jennings, uh, James Taylor, Roy Orbison, all, tons of artists. In the 80s... He worked with Jesus, and he became a Christian. And he wrote this book, this book here, The Beatles, The Bible and Bodega Bay, in 2000. And here's, here's one of the entries where Ken is dealing with suffering. And you got to remember, he's a songwriter. Uh, so this reads like poetry. <clears throat> he says this, I know a man is not supposed to cry. But today I felt like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. I wept in the wind as I walked before the waves, wondering why Matt died. I gazed out at the sea, knowing beneath its surface that the sharks and the dolphins swim in the same water. And just once though, I wish that Flipper would give Jaws a whale of a beating. Matt was a Christian brother and the young father of three small children, a fourth child was due in a few weeks. He had lost his job recently, and things were tough on all fronts, and he was killed instantly in a tragic motorcycle accident. I honestly believe that some of the tears I shed for those last days uh, were for those last days that his family had with him. I wish things could have been better before he went away for the sake of their memories. I never cried when my dad passed away. I kept thinking I would, but now I can't stop crying for Matt. Maybe I'm shedding the tears for this father as a symbol of all fathers when I think about these young children and what they have lost. I fall to my knees at the water's edge, and I lift up my swollen eyes to the heavens above, and I pray. And he says, I came to the water's edge for answers, After I heard the tragic news today, I've been staring at it for hours and waiting. As the ripples wash up on the sand, I want to rush in and have this whole thing healed to have everyone's pain go away. But I stand transfixed, unable to move in any direction, mentally, physically, spiritually. And I refuse to ask God why these things happen. He is God. We got that straight a long time ago. So I've learned to ask him what and how instead. What am I to learn from this experience? What can I do that would be in line with his wishes and purposes? How can I bear a godly witness in a situation like this, especially when all the unbelievers have a field day as we crazy Christians try to explain this one away? How can I minister to those in need? How can I glorify God in this? and in every situation in my life. The the three comforters that come to Job, they should have come with the what and the how Job is going to hold on to God in this. And they don't. They look at Job's suffering without a single word of comfort for an entire week. Then, when Job complains, these, quote, comforters... They can't wait a moment to start rebuking Job. So Eliphaz goes first. He begins. The others follow from beginning to end. That extreme suffering follows extreme wickedness. That's how the universe works. Righteousness inevitably brings blessing. Wickedness inevitably brings cursing. That There is a direct, they they go over and over, there is a direct ratio between sin and suffering. And they know this, they say, over and over and over again, based on human observation, based on their speculation. That's their authority. There couldn't be any other reason for suffering. Bildad, the guy who's up next, says the same thing, and he even goes after Job's deceased children, In chapter 8, verse 4, God has delivered your kids over to the power of their sin. Sorry, they got what they deserve. This is shockingly heartless, and at the same time, it is a totally consistent application of their worldview. Zophar, third comforter, he one-ups the other two. He says, Job, listen, let me go a step further to say that our direct ratio of sin to suffering is actually being too kind to you. The truth is you actually deserve worse from God in this life for whatever it is you've done. And there's a lot of debate, a lot of debate as to whether uh, these comforters are right or wrong. Because to some, it sounds like they say a lot of right things like, Hey, God is infinitely holy. Yeah, true. Good. Okay. Uh, then they say, and man is punished for sin, and he's rewarded for righteousness. Um, kind of true. Uh, the problem is, they are counseling Job that man is punished for sin and rewarded for righteousness in this life. And this is the, this is the t- t- typical legalistic worldview. If you're being blessed outwardly, that means God is happy with you. If you're suffering, it means God is punishing you. And listen, Job, we're not suffering, so we are more righteous than you. And you've got to repent, got to repent to be blessed. And this suffering, we promise, it's going to leave you. Just be like us. A uh, New Testament commentator says the, these are the Pharisees of the Old Testament before there were Pharisees. They had God figured out, and what they focused on is this life, and this life is the arena for receiving God's blessings or God's curses to know if God is pleased with you or if he is not pleased with you. So this is what the Pharisees taught in Israel. This is the false teaching of the Pharisees that Jesus was constantly exposing as false. And Job responds to them, you guys, you guys are such hypocrites and you don't know what you think you know. And I am totally unimpressed with all of your babbling. So riddle me this. I, a righteous man, have lost everything and I have been reduced to less than nothing. And now I'm being mocked like a joke by my friends and my wife. And how about all these pagan, idolatrous, murderous raiders who butchered all of my servants and took all of my wealth and they seem to be doing just fine. No doubt sacrificing some of my cattle to their false gods. How does that line up with your wisdom go? And they can't. And in the end, they're silent. And this is a really, 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 really important response from Job that he rejects their wisdom and comfort because he is not taken in by their religious charade. Do, so this is not so much what this is about, but we do learn something uh, about how not to counsel here. Don't do what they did, would be a simple way to put it. he like, has a contrast you can go to 1 Kings 19 and read about Elijah, like the prophet of God. And here Elijah cracks. He thinks his whole ministry, everything he's done for God, everything he's done for Israel has just totally failed. And so he goes into deep, deep depression. And so God sends the angel of the Lord to comfort Elijah. And what happens? The angel of the Lord comes He lets Elijah sleep. And then he wakes him up because he's cooked him a meal and says, you need to get up and eat. Come on, get up and eat. And then he lets Elijah go back to sleep. And he watches over him. He cooks him another meal. He says, you need to get, come on, wake up. You need to get up. You're not ready for the journey yet. You need to eat some more. Okay, let's go. Okay, that's the comfort of the angel of the Lord. And then God shows up to say some words to Elijah, uh, who's in a similar place to Job, and what he reminds Elijah, he reminds him of God's awesomeness, and of his love, and of his grace, and that he is with Elijah. He's never going to leave him. So what we are seeing here is, conflict in Job is not done. Like the battle of champions, it goes on. Satan is not done. Satan himself, he does not appear again in the book of Job, but he is at work. Satan is using these comforters as his, these are his, like like Job's wife, these are his unwitting accomplices. Because these friends, what they do is they end up endorsing Satan's view of Job, that Job is a hypocrite. They think they're defending God. The horrible irony and tragedy is they have become Satan's advocates And they conclude that the one God himself says, this is my servant. They conclude actually in their judgment, he belongs to Satan and he really needs to repent. Here's the scary. This is, this is why this is so scary. Satan has attacked and wrecked Job's wealth, his servants, his family. He's gone after Job's health none of that has worked to wreck Job's faith in God's love and God's grace but now here through the harmful words of these comforters Satan is finally making success like that that is that's horrifying and yes we could we can say that oh well, wait now Job is at his lowest state here this is the straw that broke the camel's back okay yeah And it's just as accurate to say that the most horrific suffering the devil himself could think of at the beginning, none of that worked. What does work? Bad counsel. Which is a word for us about what counsel are we, what counsel are you listening to? And as much as Job resists, there is a dissent in Job where the patience of Job becomes the impatience of Job as he wrestles to understand the why in all of this and Job begins to, he begins to complain he begins to get angry he tells his comforters i don't deserve this and he begins to recount his righteousness to to them and then he begins to recount his righteousness to God in front of them so now as you read on you start to get nervous for Job, because he's also getting really angry. that He's been decimated by God when he has been really righteous. So Job then begins to demand an audience with God. And this is when you get really, really nervous. He starts demanding an audience with God over and over and over. He, that Job starts to challenge God. And he demands satisfaction. He wants time in the heavenly court to defend himself, and then he wants God to explain and defend himself. And what's scary about this is this is not the first, this is not the first time in the book of Job that someone has challenged God. So who Job is starting to sound like is Satan. Satan. And in Job's first response, this is we're reminded, like this is crazy, we're reminded of the crux of what's happening here. He says, and in, in this is in his first response to these guys, which the second and third response is they're just building on what is said here at the beginning. In chapter 7, verse 12, Job is now looking to God and he says, Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? The sea monster he's talking about, this comes up a few times, it's going to come up again, is Leviathan is the name. Everyone says, what is, what is Leviathan, sea monster, something, it's a crocodile, it's obviously a shark. Um, who knows? Um, but it's this mythological symbol of the foe, it's this symbol, this mythological symbol of this foe of the cosmic order. Like, who's going to undo the cosmic order? It's this Leviathan. So he says, am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? Well, like, what, what is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? If I sin, what do I do to you? You watcher of mankind. Why have I, why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? So he's saying, like, what could could little old insignificant me do that would make the transcendent God of the universe treat me like this? Like, you'd think I was the chaos sea monster leviathan threatening the stability of the universe. And the truth is, the bigness of God only magnifies the seriousness of our sin. We could do a whole thing on that, but listen... Job's struggle here is so crucial because it has been made the test case of the truthfulness of God's gospel and grace. So, so like, think about, because we've had this behind-the-scenes look. Think for a second, like, what the angels, what the, quote-unquote, sons of God, who are looking on, think about what they could have told Job. That, oh, Job, you're like, yeah, you're... Yeah. In your test, the stability of the universe is under attack by the real dragon, the ancient serpent monster, of whom that that mythical sea monster is just a paganized version of it. There is a real thing. So here's an Old Testament scholar. He says it this way. He says, The angels saw the world trembling with every tremor of Job's spirit, For if the redemptive power of God could not preserve Job in the love of God, not only Job, but the world was lost to satanic chaos. The universe hangs in the balance here. Job keeps defending himself, growing more impatient and angrier. But then at the end, at the end of this rebuke, we hear hope that we haven't heard before since these guys showed up. Hope of life beyond the grave. He says, like, if there is life beyond the grave, if there is resurrection after death, he says that, that is his hope. And that blessed hope begins to renew Job's faith in the midst of the present warfare. And here's the key. Resurrection is not a key like lock and key as in resurrection, his hope of resurrection, it does not, it does not, it does not unlock the mystery of what Job is going through presently. But it does give Job hope in the midst of it. Again, this Old Testament scholar, Meredith Klein, he says this, but, it says, but, so he's got hope, okay, but this ultimate hope of redemption, that is not the central theme of the book of Job. The book does challenge us to endure, it does challenge us to endure with hope, but the book of Job confronts us with an even more profound demand. Here it is. The book of Job is about the primary and everlasting call for faith come what may in our covenant Lord. That is what the book of Job is about, is present faith come what may that God really is a God of grace. The question is not why is all this happening? The question is how do I have that present faith? Because here's Job and he is teetering on the brink. And he says over and over that he does not think he can hold on till the end. He is praying to God to kill him, to take him before it's too late, before God shows up. And it is too late that before God shows up and Job has already cursed God and turned away from God. He doesn't want to get to that point. And he doesn't think he can hold on any longer. And the big question for Job is how am I to do? Like, how get me out of here? In the Lord of the Rings, here's the how. In the in Lord of the Rings, the two towers, this is in the book. Sorry, I've not talked about this in a while. Indulge. Uh, is in the book, it's not in the movies. In point of fact, the movies ruin what may be the best part of all three books, which is this scene. So, you've got to go read the books. You're going to go read Job chapter 2 to 27, and you're going to read the Lord of the Rings uh, this week. Okay, uh, there's this part in the second book where Faramir... The captain of Gondor, he meets Frodo and Sam, the hobbits, who have got the Ring of Power. They got to go destroy it, evil, evil Ring. And there's this scene. I'm not even gonna read the scene to you. It's too awesome. Uh, Faramir, you got to go read it. Faramir resists the temptation and the evil of the Ring. And I know y'all are thinking, like, like okay, big deal. Okay, like who cares? It is a big deal. It's a huge deal because it is. It, I mean, it's Frodo. It's Sam and it's Faramir in this whole series who prove most resistant to the ring in the whole story. It's a big deal. And when Sam, Gamgee, who is really the other hero of the story, when he sees what Faramir does, he goes up to him and he bows and he says, you, you have showed your quality, sir, at the very highest and the movie totally ruins this moment. But in the book, Faramir realizing that Sam really does get what just happened and perceiving Sam's own courage and faithfulness, Faramir looks at Sam, this this little hobbit hobbit halfling. He looks at he looks at Sam and he says, "Master Samwise, the praise of the praiseworthy." is above all rewards. Fairmere is undone by the praise of Sam because he thinks the world of Sam. Now this is uh, another pastor's pointed this out. Uh, of this is why this is so good. Imagine the person, ima- just in your mind's eye, imagine the person that you praise and you admire most in the whole world. And then imagine that person praising you there is no greater reward so the question is how can job how can job how can you and me handle suffering in this life it's if in the midst of your suffering you know that god who you not only love and admire and praise you worship if you know that god loves you so much that he's willing to send his son to live and die for you if you know the depths of god's love for you you can handle your suffering you can be confused you cannot know the why god is doing what he is doing but if he knows you if you know he loves you you can handle it and you really can trust him So Job's look to the future of that resurrection, that hope, yes, it is is so good. It later, later, it leads him to look presently up to heaven in the midst of all of this. And his hope becomes a conviction of faith presently. This is in the very middle of the debates. This is the central, the core of the debates right here. Our confession of faith from this morning. Chapter 19, verse 25, in the middle of all this, Job finally says, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. As in, like, right now, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand victorious upon the earth. The Redeemer in the Old Testament, we can't lose the significance of those words. It's actually a kind of office. It's the responsibility of the next of kin, my, my kinsman Redeemer, It's the responsibility of the next of kin in a family who is responsible to restore the fortune, restore the liberty, restore the reputation of his relative when that relative is in need to come along and right all the wrongs that have been done to that relative, to avenge him if need be. And here's Job, and he knows that all his earthly family, all his his, uh, uh, earthly family, even his friends, they've all disowned him. And yet he is confident in his divine kinsman redeemer. That God is going to own Job, not disown him. That he's going to save him. So his faith in a heavenly divine vindicator, that's what he's been holding on to. It's now solidified. So Eliphaz, like Eliphaz, he begins his rebuke this way Who has ever perished who is innocent? Job knows, he remembers from the first proclamation of the gospel of grace right after the fall in Genesis 3.15, that his Savior would suffer, would suffer, would perish the sting of Satan in the place of his people in order to defeat Satan and save his people What's so crazy and what is so sad is that these comforters, like the later Pharisees, they never speak of a Redeemer. And we, loved ones, what do we believe in? What are we going to speak to? We believe and we trust in a Redeemer who hanged bloodied and beaten and alone on a Roman cross. And hanging there, not, not simply passively dying, but receiving and exhausting the wrath of God for our sin to restore us, to liberate us from the grasp of Satan and death in order to give us everlasting life, dying there on the cross, God answers the questions of humankind. The, the questions of God, where, where are you? Like, God, are you coming for us? God, will you save us? God, do you even care about me and then I'm suffering? He answers it with a cry from his son as Jesus looks up to God on the cross and cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's because Jesus was condemned that we would be saved. It's the gospel of our Savior, Redeemer. Loved ones, that may not answer all of your questions. But God does not ask us to answer all the questions. He asks us to trust him. And a big question for us is, do you trust him? And if not, are you trusting yourself? Let's put our trust in him this morning, tomorrow, the next day, until he comes back for us stands upon this earth victorious. Loved ones, our Redeemer lives. Let's pray. Father, we know our Redeemer lives. Come what may. We know the gospel is true. Help us to hold on to that as, as to the what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to give you glory? And all of this right now, help us to hold on to the gospel. Uh, in the midst of the confusion and in the midst of the darkness to hold on to that light which cannot, it cannot perish because our son, your son has overcome all sin, death and the devil himself. We thank you for that gospel. Bless us to graciously hold it out to ourselves to remind ourselves of it and to remind and hold it out to each other here and to hold it out to anyone that wants to listen to it. We pray you would give us that grace, give us that perseverance this morning, tomorrow, and the next day until you come back for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.